0: Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuian Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Shuyen, another brilliant Monday for us to have this uh, conversation.
1: (laughs) Hey, Jeremy, how's it going?
0: Yeah. It's so tough to like disconnect from the internet, right? And all the Slack and WhatsApp, all that stuff. It's like you and I, the first like 10 minutes was like, let's disconnect and focus on this conversation. Stop
1: typing. Yeah, let's talk to each other.
0: <laughs> we'll get there. We'll have this Zen moment one day. We had this fun debate and we were definitely inspired actually by the All In episode, which was talking about predictions for 2023, right? And we said, yeah, hey, you know, it'd be nice to also talk about Southeast Asia tech who will be the winners, who are going to be the losers, and our one contrarian belief for 2023. We had a nice little debate over WhatsApp and Mini won, and then we were like, oh no, we got to hold our fight for our in-person squabbling <laughs> over recorded for everybody. So Shuyen, how are you feeling about that?
1: I mean, you don't have to ask me to squabble, right? Like, this is this is fun, arguing. But I mean, also predictions are generally a fool's errand, right? Like who knows the future? We can make some guesses. We'll probably be wrong on half of them. So let's see what happens. But I think winners in 2023, I mean, I think Southeast Asia as a region is the winner, right? So I think a- across a couple of things. So one is, I think with the conflicts that are happening in the world and you know, all the things that were happening in 2022 in China, there has been a real flood of like people and capital into the region. So whether it is entrepreneurs being like, hey, we're kind of getting shut down by Xi Jinping. We need to go find other markets. It's people saying, I got to get my capital out of here. I don't want to live in a lockdown in Shanghai. What it is, there's people moving out and into the region? I think there is the diversification of supply chains. So I think there are beneficiaries there in, in Vietnam, in, in Indonesia, as people want to not have sole source dependencies there strategically, I think this region between the big U.S.-China conflict has just become more important, kind of sitting in between these two giant powers and people trying to figure out like, okay, where else should we be? And it's a demographically young region. It's a region that has relative political stability. Um, And now I just sound like that Google Tomasic report. High internet penetration, growth of e-commerce, blah, blah, blah. But in general, I think 2023 is a relatively better year, a winner in some of the shakeouts that have been happening. I mean, I think if the U.S. really goes into a deep recession, there will be a whiplash, right? And there will, capital flows will, will tighten. So we'll have to kind of see how that goes. But that's my winner prediction. My loser prediction is overcapitalized companies. Oh, wait, 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 wait,
0: wait. Wait, no, we're going to debate that. Okay, okay, I, yeah. I, got, I, got, I got to go. got you do, you do. You do, you do. well okay i'll be i'll be i'll talk i'll be the nice guy here right so i agree with you about that southeast asia economy report and let's add in a couple more positive things right like people are more using more internet people are shopping more online i would also add inflation has been less of an issue right we don't have our gas being cut off we still have energy from southeast asia is buying gas from everywhere (laughs) nothing stopped there so energy is still okay food prices obviously Southeast Asia continues to produce a lot of its own food. So food prices are relatively okay as consumers shift their basket of foods. Obviously, there's inflation in some countries and more than others in Southeast Asia, but less of an issue compared to, for example, the US or Europe. Like you said, there's a lot of excitement where I would say I think a lot of the entrepreneurial and educational reforms over the past 20 years are starting to bear fruit, right? So I think Southeast Asia talent is also starting to rise up. And And a lot of people
1: came home during the pandemic, yourself included. Right? So so I think that's another thing, right? People who had not just been educated, but who've been working abroad and who have those different experiences coming back to start businesses. I think those are all great things for the region.
0: Yeah, definitely. And on that note, that's where I'm going to be contrarian, right? I'm going to say, well, Southeast Asia is a region benefit, but I think some regions are benefited more than others. And I think for me, I think that the winner here, at risk of sounding like a total tool, is Singapore, right? For all those benefits they talk about, Singapore has actually has a disproportionate share of this, right? So in terms of, for example, returning talents, right? Singapore had a huge diaspora of folks that were working in the U.S. and everywhere, and they came back during the pandemic. And so I think it benefits them. Whereas I think the amount of talent that went back to, for example, I think the Philippines, for example, is a lower percentage, right? Compared to other regional countries. Yeah, but I mean,
1: that's because we're a tiny country. And even those people that come back, they're not starting companies in Singapore only. It's not big enough. So even if they start the business here, it's going to be addressing the region. They're going to want bigger markets to attack. Um,
0: Oh, yeah. I'm not going to let you get off so easily,
1: okay? I'm going to fight back.
0: Yeah, we can fight each other. No, I agree. It's obviously Asia benefits. I don't disagree with you. But then when you talk about companies, they came back and where they're living. They're living. A lot of them want to live in Singapore. And driving our home
1: prices up.
0: Yeah. And also, they're registering the companies in Singapore, right? So the are domiciling companies in Singapore, which is becoming a little bit of a Delaware kind of like situation, which is really interesting. So as a result, the finance... Who gave you this benefit. talk track?
1: Is the government paying you? What's <laughs> happening here? No,
0: I think they have negative downsides as well. So, well, let's just keep going. And then I think you talked about, like, for example, you mentioned like flight of capital and flight of talent from China. Well, where they're going disproportionately to Singapore. And... This is not a new thing. I was walking around the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Museum, his old villa, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, my great-grandparents was one wave of Chinese immigration at the end of the Qing dynasty. And then there was another wave of immigration around, obviously, the Civil War and so, so forth, right? It's interesting to some extent, like, all of us are looking at this wave of Chinese emigration to the rest of the world, the US and to the UK and to... Singapore as if it's like a new thing. And I think myself, it's happened a couple of times now. Right? Who
1: do you think built those railroads, right? Chinese immigrants.
0: We <laughs> gotta. I, I think not everyone knows which railroads those are. You want to define those railroads? Which railroads are you refer uh, to?
1: The American railroads, a lot of Chinese labor built the railroads in the West. A lot of the Western Chinatowns are from that era. Um, and a lot of the food even is from that era. People are like, oh, there's no good Chinese food in America or whatever it is. It's because it's like the people who went over, they needed like really hearty food, had, like big plates of fried rice. It's not like, oh, let's have some shark's fin soup or whatever. What's that Hamilton song? It's like immigrants, right? We got the job done.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you about that. Yeah, so I'm just saying like a lot of those things that you're mentioning in terms of a tech ecosystem benefit feels like Singapore is, I think, a disproportionate winner, right, within the Southeast Asia story. So I think there'll be an interesting dynamic. Obviously, there's like downsides you mentioned, right? you talked about rising asset inflation like houses and cars and fancy things in Singapore, right? I think relative wealth or the perception of the relative wealth gap is going to get worse in Singapore. So, there's going to be some issues there about managing that, honestly. So, lots of downsides that are the shadow of this relative boom for 2023. And, oh, one last thing is you mentioned supply chain, right? Is logistics and shift. Singapore is the hub for logistics within Southeast Asia, right? So, I think, again, Singapore disproportionately benefits this year. I think that may change in the future years, but in this current time, oil and gas prices are still good. Singapore benefits on the oil and gas side as well. So I think Singapore disproportionately benefits this year in a year of really bad macroeconomic news and suffering for the rest of the world. So I agree with you. Southeast Asia benefits, but I'll say Singapore benefits the most currently. For this year, that's my prediction. At least we'll see where it ends up in the year. You never know; things can go wrong, right? So let's talk about losers. Losers for two, zero, two, three. Who goes? People first? who
1: raise too much money.
0: Ooh, over, sure, yeah. go, over, go, go!
1: Over overcapitalized over companies. Um, I mean,
0: define uh, overcapitalized. Is there such a thing as too much money?
1: Yes, yes, there is such a thing as too much money. So the story I always tell is, at my old startup, I was in charge of the annual planning process. And the year before I left, I probably managed an annual planning process for about $100 million worth of spend. And there's a process, right? You prioritize your project, you think about what the ROI is, blah, blah, blah. If the CFO had come to me and was like, Shan, by some miracle, we have found 20% extra budget, okay? Now you have $120 million to do in your planning process versus $100 million. I could probably spend that, right? I had a good, like, pretty decent list of projects. But let's say the CFO made friends with SoftBank and SoftBank was like, Shan, you now have $500 million to spend. It's actually pretty hard to think about what the productive projects are. And now you can make some of this argument like, oh, you can do some more moonshot projects, right? Like things that are not gonna pay off immediately. Plus you can do everything else. But that's not actually how most companies work. Like when you have more money, it just basically means that the marginal decision-making gets worse. And because it, it feels less painful. You don't have to trade as many things off. And so what happens is you end up doing like way more things, some of which are not actually strategic. So then what happens is you have to hire like way more people. And then all those people are running around trying to like add value and prove that they belong somewhere. And six months passes, you like look at this array of stuff and you're like, wait, what happened with that project? Did it actually deliver the thing that it wanted? And so there is something as too much money and there is raising the right amount of money for the stage that you're at. And so... I think in 2021 and early 2022, when money was so plentiful and it was so easy to raise, there's always like, hey, why not? I thought I was going to raise 10, but hey, they want to give me 30. Why not? And so then the question is, what did they do with that money? And did they put themselves out over their skis such that that next round is not going to come so easily? And you raised a bunch of money at some high valuation, but your operating metrics are not there. So... And then we talked a little about this last week, but like people started to make cuts. I think more is going to come. I think 2023 is going to be the year of the markdown, the year of the layoff. And we have not felt the full pain of that yet. And I think the people who are impacted most by this are overcapitalized companies.
0: Within the dynamic, I have to ask this, right? Within these overcapitalized companies, who are the winners and the losers? So I would say that one set of losers, obviously, is employees, right? So you have a bunch of options. And you're gonna get crushed by this either because you got laid off and now you gotta enter a pretty bad job market, obviously, or your options are gonna be marked down because you're pretty much underwater. You're not gonna see the value of that. I also can imagine that if you're an executive, you also have a lot of options performance. So I don't know, who else do you think wins or loses in that dynamic of overcapitalized companies?
1: I think the winners are the people who cut earlier and they bought themselves enough time, right? The people who like got to reality faster they're going to win because they had more money in the bank than anybody else and they can ride it out. The losers are the people who still have their head in the sand and they think this thing is going to turn around faster than it actually is or who think they have product market fit when they don't. I mean, I think employees are definitely the big losers here.
0: I'd say winners are consumers who got free money or a lot of extra service for not as yeah. much. I see the iro coming in, but yeah, you know, yeah, I rem- yeah, don't you remember the good old days when we could like get subsidized car rides because there was like a true way fight in every market <laughs> for yes. ride hailing.
1: Yes, 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 and and many other things. Right, I used to live in San Francisco, and I would get free groceries when all the grocery delivery companies started up. Really cheap transit. There was this great startup where they would park your car for you. So it's like you would drive to your office and then the moment you left your house, you press the button in the app and then this guy would meet you and he would hop into your car and he would drive it off site for like cheaper parking. And then when you wanted to no. leave, yeah, it was the best thing ever. I was pregnant. So like i didn't have to walk like from the really far away, cheaper garage. I could like drive straight up from my office. This guy would pick it up. And then 30 minutes before I wanted to leave the office, I would press a button in the app and then the guy would bring the car back to me. And it was, wait, what? Amazing. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing service. Obviously not economic because you have this guy like basically driving cars from like downtown San Francisco where, you know, they want to charge you like 50 bucks a day for parking or whatever. It costs me like $10. Okay. Totally worth it. And he's on a little scooter. So that's how he gets around So you press up and all those little guys in blue jackets come on a scooter. Fantastic. Not a great business, but fantastic service.
0: How much do you think the start-up? And in fact, the VC was paying you for every transaction you did there. I don't for... know.
1: I don't know. But I think they raised and burned probably like ten plus million bucks. So Ooh,
0: yeah, so know. they must have been like subsidizing you maybe like ten bucks or twenty bucks per transaction.
1: At least, at least. <laughs> but you know, saw saw me through my pregnancy, so I'm eternally grateful.
0: So winners are. You know, it actually reminds me of this TikTok I saw. It was like this person was like oh, this is how I live for free every day. And she was basically just creaming off every startup freebie. (laughs) That was happening every day. I think it went pretty viral. And I was thinking to myself like, like this is the consumer. Why not? But I was just looking at the consumer. I was like, this is like the dark times. So winners are, I think, companies who figure out reality. Because if you're overcapitalized, I think you're right. Capital is an advantage. If you have a lot of it, you cut relatively early and deeply. Then you can just ride out this whole storm for the next two years or three years or four years.
1: Yeah, but reality is really hard. Right, and no one ever cuts enough. I mean, like Coinbase did two 20% cuts like six months apart or whatever it was, right? It's hard. The evil word, zero-based budgeting. It's what people need to do. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's least favorite thing. Wait, uh, now I got, uh, well, we've got
0: to do a side, quick side tension. in, but Twitter is like zero-based budgeting now, right? Yeah, much yeah. They went to zero, they threw out everything. They just had an auction. I think they auctioned off a couple million dollars worth of Twitter bird signs and neon lights and sculptures and
1: I mean but the bigger driver is that revenue's down, right? So like yeah, you can cut your revenues down by 40%. That's like a pretty big hole. The interest payment is coming due, right? On that on that deal.
0: Ooh. So what do you think is gonna happen for Twitter? And Twitter Singapore office slash Southeast Asia?
1: I don't know. I don't know. This whole thing just seems like very perplexing to me. I hope Twitter doesn't die. I think it is actually a really great product that has done a lot of interesting things. It's done a lot of bad things too, right? But in terms of like exposure to ideas, distribution of ideas, I think it's been really amazing. And so I hope that they can get it into a format where it's an ongoing concern. Which to be fair, I think if they had managed to retain the advertisers and then he had cut headcount and burn, I think actually the numbers would work out. Um, but the cut plus the drop in revenue, I think is like a double whammy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, my prediction is that Twitter as a product will survive. I, I think that a social network and a social graph is, I don't know, strong enough to have some sort of network effects to keep going for quite a while. Heck, look at Facebook, right? As a product, we're still using it. At least us old, stodgy millennials and Gen Z folks who have to hang out millennials are still using the product. I would say, yeah, but I think the revenue drop I just think that fundamentally, obviously, everybody knows this, but Elon Musk overpaid. I mean, massively overpaid. And Yeah, I mean, he
1: to... tried really hard to get out of the deal, right? He did all the stuff to get out of the deal. And he, he, he could have
0: like... just done a settlement. I think a settlement would have been the cheaper option. I mean, considering the opportunity cost of managing Tesla and SpaceX. I mean, hindsight twenty twenty, right? But I think if the sunk cost was like, what? You want to make me do- pay you a settlement for breaking up with you? No, I'm just going to go into it anyway. <laughs> And see how, what a terrible marriage is going to be for both of us. I don't know. It's going to be a, I don't know. So I think Twitter will survive as a product. That's my prediction. I think that Twitter as a price is overpaid massively. I think like you said, interest payments are going to be huge. I think there's a, I don't know what's the come to Jesus moment coming up for Twitter, I would say. I don't think Elon Musk is going to keep running it. I think he's just got too much stuff to do. Well, he had a poll.
1: He did a poll on Twitter. Should I stay on as CEO? And everyone's like, "No, you should not."
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he has his own point of view, but I think the bankers also have their own point of view. It's like,
1: I mean, I think they've already marked down the debt. Um, yeah, they know they're going to take a hit.
0: Yeah. So now the question yeah. is: Is I think who's going to buy Twitter again? I guess at half the price. I guess that's what I'm thinking. Yeah.
1: I don't, I don't know. I think it's like a tough, it's a tough. It's, I think all this content moderation is just a really hard problem. But there were a lot of really interesting ideas on Twitter, right? Which is to like say, hey, can you make it more of an API? Let people build different front ends to it. And then they can filter what they want. They can set the algorithm, right? And it takes a little bit out of your hands, like saying, should we have hate speech or not? Does this co- constitute hate speech? What is this? But you haven't come up with your loser yet. Who's your loser?
0: Ooh. Jeremy. Jeremy. I would say the losers are middle stage companies. So I think late stage companies that will overcapitalize. Obviously, they're a huge benefit, but they do have some level of incumbency. they have the capital advantage. And if they cut, which I think they eventually do, I think they'll slowly figure things out. But I think if you're a middle stage company, you're like totally hammered in Southeast Asia, right? Because, like, first of all, you don't have enough capital, right? Like you are an early stage, you are in growth mode. Obviously, you're a little bit nimble and obviously still. But you're still in a relatively high burn rate, right? And you definitely don't have the benefits of incumbency. You don't have the market leader position. And you're fighting the incumbents. I think you're in a really tough, strategic spot about whether to grow or become profitable, right? You're not large enough to grow profitable for people to care about, but you're not profitable enough for you to grow quickly on your own capital. And the problem from there would just be that... It's hard to raise the next stage of capital as well, right? Which is for late-stage capital. All these U.S. funds or regional funds are looking at these late-stage guys and looking, I think they're making the same judgment as you did about late-stage companies and saying, like, these are overvalued. But I think just people are just going to stay out of middle-stage. And I think that Series B, Series C gap that we know exists in Southeast Asia is just, I think, getting worse, right, I think, from my perspective. So, Yeah,
1: yeah I would actually agree with that. And also to the extent that international funds were dipping their toes into the region before, I think as the economy cools, they'll pull back, right? So, separate from the regional funds that will pull back, the international capital that was there before, I think will also pull back, so so I would agree with you. I think that's also gonna be pretty challenging for these businesses.
0: Yeah, and for I think a mid-stage company, what is there to cut? The revenue base is focused on growth, you don't have that much to cut compared to a late-stage company. How badly
1: do you wanna survive? You're gonna have to cut.
0: Yeah, I mean, you still have to cut still. I think the middle stage companies still have to focus on growth and revenue versus late stage, they probably have a big enough revenue base and they probably just have to cut and keep the revenue. That's the way to survive. So I don't know. It's, I think trying to figure out growth in this, over, like you said, the market is still relatively soft, right? So it's a tough time to be a founder for sure. I guess before we contribute, any advice on reality?
1: I mean, I think you just have to think about optionality, right? Of course, we, we always want to hope for the best, right? Right. But- you got to make a couple plans, right? Everything goes right plan. Some things go right plan. Nothing goes right plan. And look at what your cash and burn scenarios are in either of those plans and act accordingly, right? You you cannot plan for everything going right. That just never happens. Rarely. Okay. Not never. Very, very, very rarely happens. Something generally goes wrong. Something will take longer than you think it will be. And you just got to get into reality. And I think sometimes people are like, oh, my investors are so negative. And it's like, Maybe, or maybe they also see a lot of other companies going through the same thing, and they're just trying to help you get to reality faster. Um, survival is a prerequisite for success, so make sure you survive. And part of that is is taking the difficult actions sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to the, I always talk about this, like the asymmetric outcomes, right? For a VC, you know, sometimes the outcomes are of this portfolio of 20, one makes it superstar and then the rest chug along in that sense, right? Or close down. But for a founder, like you said, survival, right? It's like one of the scenarios you keep growing and other scenarios you run off cash and hit a brick wall, right? It's totally different in terms of, I don't know. But it's a tough conversation. Do do people think you're like overly negative, Shreyan? Do people not like you for saying this stuff? So since we're in such a contrary mode with each other right now, we should obviously talk about the contrarian belief for Southeast Asia Tech 2023. So Shiyan, what's yours?
1: I think that the sort of prevailing wisdom is that the startups that we see in Southeast Asia are basically adapting successful models for the West for this market. And we shouldn't hold our breath on true technical innovation. And so my contrarian belief is that we will start to see technical innovation come out of Southeast Asia. And there's two things that I am bullish or excited about. One is Vietnam becoming more of a manufacturing base. Japanese and Korean consumer electronics businesses have invested a lot over the last 20 years in building up that capability. Vietnam actually has a really great, talented pool of electrical engineers. It's often probably overshadowed by more software, business process, outsourcing types of things. And I think with the shift of Chinese manufacturing to second source in Vietnam, you're going to see more of that. And so that kind of cuts down on the cycles. Um, So they're going to be on the cutting edge and they're going to also start innovating there. So that's sort of one trend that I'm excited about. And the other is, I think you're starting to see more push towards figuring out ways to commercialize research out of the universities here in Singapore and elsewhere. And I think that's always been a big gap, right? The big gap between Research and commerce met some folks starting up pre-seed and seed healthcare funds. You don't see those a lot in this region. Aimed at trying to find some of this research and, and bring it to market. So that's my contrarian view: is we're going to start to see real technological innovation come out of Southeast Asia.
0: Like what kind of technological innovation? Like nuclear um, fusion?
1: I think there's drug discovery, bioinformatics, machine learning, or AI, statistical approaches to, to drugs, even sort of. Therapeutics, so cancer drugs, things like that. You know, there's a lot of work on healthcare as it relates to Asian populations because a lot of R and D in the West has been done on Western populations, and disease actually presents differently in in Asian people. It follows that you can also find therapies that that work differentially across populations. Don't be so skeptical, Jeremy. This is the classic Singaporean problem. Everyone always thinks everything outside is better. They don't like respect what happens at home.
0: Wait, hey! I feel justly attacked here. I was, I was I was just impressed that the technology you pick was probably, yeah, one bound further. I mean, I was, if you had asked me, i say like the technology innovation, I was going to say was like, I think that there's a lot of e-vehicles starting to come out. So yes. I was going to say manufacturing, assembly, integration, which is probably one, honestly, one knowledge bound lower than bioinformatics, yeah. for example. So I'll probably be like one bound lower if I was to say just emerging green shoots. But bioinformatics and, I don't know, genetics feels like, I don't know, it feels like there could be winners. Yeah, okay. I can see why it's contrarian, right? It's fine.
1: fine. (laughs) I'm not disagreeing with you. And then one more piece of data that I will offer, I don't know if it's data. One more anecdotal thought I will offer is I am meeting more young people with crazy ideas. And that gives me hope. Because that means they are actually trying to allow themselves to dream bigger, and I think that is a prerequisite for actually trying to do bigger and harder things. Oh,
0: yeah, I do like that actually. It's always <laughs> heartwarming. And then, and then you're like, and then you're like the cranky old <laughs> uncle or auntie who tells them, "Well, as a steward of capital, <laughs> startups are really hard, and you face reality." And yeah,
1: <laughs> both can be true. Both can be true. I, I do think like. If you want to do big things, you actually have to believe that it is possible. And obviously belief is not enough, right? You need to have skills, you need to have capital, you got to get all the resources together, whatever, but belief is a big part of it. Otherwise, starting a company is a negative expected value proposition in general, right? So you have to be a little bit delusional, right? And the question is like, how delusional are you? And so... It heartens me to meet more young people. SMU has an incubator, and I sometimes jump in to judge for them which projects can join their incubator. And I definitely met some wacky people, and I was like, "Oh, I like this. I like that. There's some weirdos."
0: Oh, so heartwarming. <laughs> you know, we we, we should. We, I want to frame that manifesto. Startups is a negative expected value enterprise. <laughs> I really like weirdos. But that's the manifesto here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, tech is all about weirdos who so we want to build a future, right? We're all weirdos, right? We're talking about the future and we're not yeah, present in the moment. Um, on that note, I want to share about my contrarian belief. I think my contrarian belief is, I think obviously there is a lot of interest in green technology, climate, so, so forth. Obviously, I want to say that I do believe that climate change is real. Yeah. I
1: can't be on a podcast with a climate change denier. That would be too much. A bridge too yeah, but, far. Uh,
0: and I also believe that I think that there should be more government action. I remember actually, like over a dozen years ago. I mean, I was in a class and and I was just looking at this climate change, and there was so much hope a dozen years ago, and everyone was debating. And then I kind of like laughed, right? And, and then the professor was like, "Jeremy, I noticed that you're you're laughing." And I was like, "Why are you laughing?" And I said, "I said, well, these predictions for to save the world depend on like China and India to taper back their energy usage, which is like." not going to happen. Not- I mean,
1: to take that view, why should they, right? The climate change problem was created by the West. They've been industrialized for 200 years before India and China and they can get off their high horse. On a per capita basis, the West emits way more than India and China. And it's not reasonable to say, hey, you need to, for the good of the world, you need to go do this. And like, okay, great. You do it yourself first, law." Right? I mean, I'll let you finish yours before I come be, be, be yeah. disagreeable.
0: Well- yeah, yeah, I think the tricky part that we have here is that we zoom into Southeast Asia, right? Then obviously there's the two dynamics, right? Which is, like you said, there's climate change, which is an issue that all of us should care about in aggregate over the medium to long term. And obviously it has some impacts in the short term. But in the short term, there's massive energy poverty, right? Which is about folks just can't get enough energy, right? Because energy is what powers your phone, your lights to be able to study at night or be more productive to do your sewing, the cost of energy is still actually really high in Southeast Asia, right? And so, and it's not available, it's not reliable. And so I think the argument for Southeast Asia is need more energy. Okay, so I'm just talking about why energy is great. And I think obviously there's energy poverty on one side, and we can also solve for climate change, right? I'm not saying don't do both. I think the tricky part is obviously there's this huge, I think, interest, and I've been meeting a lot of people, for example, in Singapore, who are very passionate about green, about climate change, et cetera. And then I think they have this dynamic where they're trying to build for Southeast Asia. And I I think it reminded me at some different level, right? Which was like, is this early? And what I mean by that is I think the talent is interested in climate change in obviously across the region in different pockets and obviously a lot in Singapore, which is honestly Singapore is closer to a tier one market in terms of GDP per capita, right? So the affinity of climate change is much higher than you would see, for example, in KL, for example, right? Or Manila, right? So in terms of the affinity to this cause. But the market is not there, right? Because the levers for you to to change or improve, for example, is to convince, for example, local, medium, and large enterprises to lower carbon emissions. Well, I don't think local, medium, and large enterprises... Obviously, I think Singapore is a little bit ahead, for better or for worse, in this dynamic. But I think if you go one level deeper into like mom and pop shops and everyone else. I think the level of awareness, let alone interest in this, compared to the real life issues of surviving inflation, surviving the economic crisis and recession, right? Growing the company are like number one, number two, number three problems, right? And this is like number six, number seven at best. So I think there's a little bit like the talent for, I have a soft heart and I'm working to work with ESG and climate tech folks in Southeast Asia. And I also feel like the local markets are not thick enough or perhaps it's a little bit too early to be a really fertile ground for everybody. So I think that's going to be interesting. I'm
1: actually going to disagree with you on this, right? I don't think people are going to do things against their own economic interests out of the goodness of their heart. I think that's just like, no, not going to happen. However, I do think that some of this pressure is actually economic. So suppliers who are selling into the US and EU are getting requests from their end customers to show, hey, are you doing anything for the climate? Like, how green is your operation? And that trickles down into their supply chain. And so they are actually then forcing their own supply chain to also report on their carbon emissions. And so the the carrot is right is like I need to continue selling into these markets right otherwise I don't get certified. It's like what happened with the shoe companies and child labor if you remember in the 90s right, which is like hey Nike, Adidas, whatever they don't want to pay you if you're like using child labor in some of these markets. So it's it's a similar dynamic. It is actually driven by an economic imperative. We have a portfolio company in this space, which is why I do know a little bit about this. Governments are offering low cost financing. As a way to help these companies, these SMEs who are little subcontractors in these bigger supply chains, to adopt this software, to become compliant, and therefore continue and grow their business. So so I think that's how it happens. No one's going to do something out of the goodness of their heart. They do it because, hey, I'm going to get access to a cheaper loan, or I can no longer sell to this customer because I I didn't implement the carbon software. But I mean, honestly, you know what we could do? We could just not air condition all offices in Singapore to an Arctic temperature. That's something everyone can do that's very easy. Just make it two degrees warmer, okay? And then we don't all have to wear sweatshirts and long pants and just embrace the fact we live in a tropical climate and maybe we can like use less energy.
0: Yeah, I think that's, like I said, I'm sympathetic and empathetic. I have a soft spot, right? I also care about this issue. I just think that 2023 would just be a really tough year because I think the rhetoric And bullishness at least under the category versus I think the actual market reality and actually I think you're right by the way thank you for reminding me I agree with you that there's a pull factor from the developed markets to care about this more and actually I think all I would say is this I think if I had to be bullish it would be on energy cost saving companies or energy efficiency companies but I think anything that explicitly labels itself as green or ESG and saying that this is going to be the thing or value proposition that's going to give me venture capital or customer capital is probably going to find that it's not the most interesting part of their value proposition. So so I agree with you. And energy, savings, efficiency, productivity improvements, I think that's the way, I I suspect that any ESG or climate change company is going to like relabel themselves to be really focusing themselves on the business objectives.
1: Yeah. Um, I would just say, Jeremy, while we have this podium and I mean, who knows how big our audience is, right? Like, hey, climate change is real. There is a CO2 budget if we want to keep temperature rise in the envelope of one and a half to two degrees. And essentially the math is if we don't do anything, we're going to hit that in 20 years. And that is going to leave vast swaths of this planet uninhabitable. And so plant some trees, man. (laughs) Get your government to plant more freaking trees. But yeah, i it, it is a it is it is is a real it's a real big problem and, and the collective action right like is is very very hard.
0: Yeah. On that note, yeah, I mean, we're both parents. We both have children and potentially grandchildren in the future, and they're gonna inherit this earth that we leave behind in a hopefully. Well, we already know we're gonna trash this environment. For the no, next 10 no. Years. I mean, human uh,
1: ingenuity can hopefully come through. But like, yeah, if you that's haven't true. read that's true. There's this great book, Ministry of the Future. It's a novel, but, but about climate change. I mean, I think it's a very, very, it's an excellent book. But yeah, yeah, yeah we got to fix it, right? Um, so.
0: Yeah. And I want to clarify I'm not saying that if you're doing ESG or green, I'm not saying that you'd stop doing it. You should do it for the sake of us. I'm just saying that just watch out in 2023 to not get caught between the trap of all the social media stuff that everyone is doing thumbs up and saying we're really interested in supporting you versus, I think, the colder reality of business objectives in Southeast Asia so and I do believe in 20 30 years time frame over that patience I think green and ESG will have that long-term horizon
1: we don't have 30 years I'm telling you 20 years which means we years. need to act now
0: you mean 40 years I mean we can do this in 50 years right oh I mean 60 years I mean that's okay our grandkids can inherit right <laughs> she has this Just can't.
1: Can't.
0: shaking her head come on, this is the way. We don't deny the problem. We just postpone it and procrastinate. Um, On that note, let's kind of recap, I think the three big winners and losers. Can you recap your winner, loser, and contrarian?
1: Winner, Southeast Asia, loser, overcapitalized startups, and contrarian, I think we're going to see more technical innovation, not just business model innovation, come out of Southeast Asia.
0: And for myself, would be winners, Singapore disproportionately more, while Southeast Asia still benefits. Loser would be middle stage companies that are looking to raise capital and can't figure out whether to grow or be profitable. And contrarian belief is that green and ESG companies will be focusing on their business objectives this year. And I think we'll see where it goes from there. And we will revisit this in one year's time, Shian. It would oh be so exciting. Oh
1: God. Like, we'll be
0: like, we're going to see whether it are right or wrong. That'll be the magic question, right?
1: That'll be fun. It's always, what is it, humbling, right? Hold yourself accountable be actually honest about what you were right and wrong
0: about. You just like, like watch yourself on your phone and you're just like, what was I talking about? That's the stupidest thing I've ever said. Oh my God, right? Oh, all right. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.